The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace. As you know, the show is about getting out of your comfort zone, doing things that you've never done, that you're not an expert in, but doing them anyway. Um, Taking a risk, moving beyond what you know how to do, and all of that means having confidence in yourself and in your team to make the decisions, and then even when somebody else has done the work. It's all about learning to add value doing more than just you do by, can do by yourself. So regardless of whatever it is that you're stretching beyond in your comfort zone, it's uncomfortable. It's scary. It's risky. So how do you learn to lean into that discomfort intentionally and where to get the courage? And that's the focus of our show today. So with me today is Bill Treasurer. Bill describes himself as a chief encouragement officer and is an evangelist for courage. Bill personally has learned to do things that are far outside of his comfort zone, starting with someone who's being afraid of heights and still learning to take a high dive from 100 feet in the air into a pool of water that's 10 feet deep. Bill was a former U.S. team high diving captain, and he was afraid of heights. He's gone on to teach leaders to to be courageous. He's written a bunch of books, Leaders Open Doors, Courage Goes to Work, and Courageous Leadership along with Right Risk. So Bill's an expert in this, and we're going to talk about how do you lean into discomfort and come out the other side. So Bill, welcome to the show. Wanda, I couldn't be more pleased to be here and to have a show called Out of the Comfort Zone. It just seems like we were made to speak to each other. Absolutely. Let's hope so. I'm really looking forward to this one. Okay, Bill, you're afraid of heights and you decide that you're going to be a high dive specialist and go on to be the U.S. team captain. Why? You know, it really comes down to a couple of things. The first is I had a loving coach. And the second, I was tired of being small. I was a, um, when I was a kid, I wasn't a very good athlete. I was a, a short kid. Uh, I'm still kind of on the short side, not built for baseball or basketball or football. And uh, one day at the local pool, me and some buddies were doing just back dives. And by mistake, I pulled my legs around and I did a backflip. And suddenly I was doing something that they weren't, and I found a sport that I got good at. But when you progress in the sport, eventually you have to progress upward. And it came time to go to college, and colleges were um, dangling scholarships in front of me and they would all ask me about my high board list of dives. But I never bothered to learn a high board list of dives because I was afraid of heights. So this coach, uh, Ford Winter was his name, 
he helped me do the uncomfortable thing. He nudged me into discomfort, helped me become accountable to my own potential, and ultimately, it's a, it's a somewhat involved in, uh, story, and I'm very happy to tell it, but through a process of incrementally helping me withstand greater intensity of discomfort, eventually the kid who had a profound fear of heights, not only did I get a high board list of dives on the three-meter, eventually I would dive from 100 feet into small pools 1,500 times, traveling at speeds in excess of 50 miles an hour, all because I had a coach who loved me, cared about me, held me accountable to my potential, wouldn't let me turn away from it, and I was tired of walking away from sports, so I, I finally uh, leaned into the discomfort, as you say. Fascinating. So I have to ask the first question, are you still afraid of heights, or is it just the high dive that you can do, or have you gotten over the height issue? You know, I still am afraid of heights, and, and I think that this is you know, sort of part of the central point when it comes to courage. The courage is not fearlessness. You know, we, we see those bumper stickers that say, no fear. The person in that car is not a courageous person. They might be a stupid person or foolhardy person, but it takes fear to be courageous. And I still am afraid of heights, but I don't let that fear dominate me. And I know that I can do the things mentally that I need to in order to subdue that fear and at least allow myself to out-dominate it. But the, the fear is still there. Uh, courage takes the presence of fear. Otherwise, it's not courage. Interesting. I like that. It takes the, the things to do to seduce the fear. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand the principal starting point on this story. So you finally found something you could do, and you were special at finally, and especially for young boys growing up, often sports are kind of important. And to continue to excel at that and get a scholarship, you had to complete a list of high dives that you had never done. So there's yeah, a goal. I had to learn a three-meter list of dives. Uh, because in college, they have not just one meter, but also three meter. And what's interesting is, so he did this through a process that I call modulating comfort. What he did was, we went down to Iona College in New York, where I was from, which is Westchester County. And in New Rochelle, New York, Iona College is there. And they had the only diving board, even to this day, that I've ever seen that was built on a hydraulic lift, like when you go to the, get your oil change. So he was able to take that board and now move it to one and a half meters. And now my heart's racing. I'm going over on my dives. I'm getting welts on my legs. I don't even want to be to practice. Uh, but after about 100 dives, it starts to get a little bit better. After 200 dives, I'm used to it. After 300 dives, I'm bored. And boredom is a great clue for any leader. Uh, that was when he moved it to two meters. And then after he moved it to two meters, my heart's racing again. I'm going over my dives again. I don't want to be at practice. All the same intense feelings of discomfort, but slowly, incrementally, those feelings subsided as well. So he was moving me through this process of he would move me and nudge me into discomfort until I acquired the skills, capability, and confidence, and then I would get bored, and then he'd move me back out into discomfort. Never in a way that caused me to be petrified, but in a way that held me accountable to my potential and stretched me forward. And it was through that process that the kid who started out with a profound fear of heights, not only did I get a full scholarship to West Virginia University and I got a high board list of dives, but I eventually became a traveling high diver diving from heights that scaled to over 100 feet. And keep in mind that the only thing that protected me was my mentality 
and a speedo. So it, it was really his uh, his coaching that did all the difference, made all the difference. All right. So there's a goal. There's a thing you want. There's something you want to get to. And it has to be pretty important. Otherwise, you wouldn't go through this. And then there's this modulation of the fear, learning to control the voice to, to um, subdue the fear. And a coach you believe in and trust mm-hmm. who moves you from discomfort Let you get comfortable, moves you get bored, then moves you back to discomfort. Yes. There's actually a a psychological term for it. It's called a protective frame. On the one hand, you know, we seem to spend a lot of time trying to reduce our fear. But there's another approach to consider, and that is instead of trying to reduce your fear, take the actions that you can take to build your psychological constitution or what psychologists sometimes call a protective frame so that you can withstand greater intensity of fear. So you could think of it like a tiger in a cage that you need both to experience excitement. Like if you went to a zoo and only saw a cage and no tiger, you'd want your money back. But if you went to the zoo and saw a tiger with no cage, you'd run like heck and you should. But you, what you need is both. You need to have the fear which is the tiger, but you need a protective frame that is that internal strength and constitution, your confidence, the preparation, a strong coach that gives you this, the strength to match the intensity of the fear. Okay. All right. So um, I like this notion of the protective frame that, and, and it is well known in psychological terms and that you, it's not that you don't get rid of the fear. It's that you know how to cope with the fear. Mm -hmm. And you said confidence. One of the things that we talk about all the time in executive classes is, has to do with confidence. Where do I get my confidence? How do I boost my confidence? And it's particularly relevant if you're dealing with people who are of a minority, like women, for example. They often find their confidence is slightly undermined by not being like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, any, you know, what is it that it, what is this that it takes to boost the confidence? Is it just practice and a coach and believing in your, I mean, what is it that drives that confidence? It's a good question, and, you know, first let's acknowledge that we spend a lot of time uh, unconfident in our roles as leaders, whether you're a new leader, uh, whether you're in over your head, um, when you're trying a new skill. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who had just become, he had just become an associate partner at the, at the management consulting firm that, where we worked, and the CEO of the company, who himself was the managing partner of the entire firm, was standing in front of these 200 newly uh, promoted executives who were on their way to becoming partners. And, they, and he, they had a sort of open forum where they could ask questions. And they asked him, one person said, you know, what is your greatest fear? And he sort of itched his chin a little bit and he said, you know, I wake up each day thinking this is the day I'll be found out. So even at very senior levels, we, we lack confidence sometimes. Your question was, you know, what is confidence? I think it's an interesting question because I kind of think of it as an outcome. I actually think that it's the result of courage applied, that when you do the courageous thing and you find that you were able to do it and you've subdued the fear or you've mastered or dominated the fear, you've learned something about yourself in the process. It's sort of a seasoning effect. You know, there's, there's... False confidence, when you do something that you shouldn't have done and that you thought you could do because you were falsely confident, but you gain true confidence by accessing your courage, doing the thing that was hard, scary, or challenging, and getting on the other side, 
you get the seasoning that I think comes in the form of confidence. That's an interesting statement. So it's not that we just manufacture false confidence, is that we admit that I'm lacking confidence, I'm afraid of this, and I face into it. I go forward. I think so. I think you become confident in yourself. You become confident in the knowledge of what you're good at and what you're not good at, and much more discerning about the things that you actually should avoid versus the things that you should lean into because it's going to uh, hold you accountable to the executive you're trying to become. Okay, so discerning what I should avoid as well. Okay, great. I get it. Then we're back to the tiger story again. Now, go back to this notion about the coach. I want to know a little bit about what it was that the secret sauce that this coach had. And one of the things you said is he recognized when you were bored. Mm. And that was the wind to push you. And you said that's what leaders need to do, recognize when we're bored. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. He he is a remarkable person. He's still alive. I actually dedicated my first book to him. You know, a lot of people dedicate their books to their parents and that kind of thing. But, But he was such an impact on my life. His name is Ford Winter. Um, and, and Ford, you know, I think the key was he knew how badly I wanted it and he could also see my potential further out than I could see it for myself. So he believed in me before I believed in me and his belief in me carried me through to the point that I could start believing, you know, if I couldn't believe in myself, I could at least believe that he believed in me. I knew that was true. And if I could trust the things that he was saying, which took some challenge, but if I could trust him, then eventually it would uh, help me get to the point where I could start to trust myself. He used to say a really interesting thing, Wanda. He would say to me, he'd say, come on, Bill, the dive wants to dive. That was an interesting thing to say. It was almost like, you know, Bill, the only thing getting in the way of this dive is your mentality. The dive actually wants to come out of your body. It wants to get off the diving board. Help it do that. You know, I I'd always, uh, I sometimes still remember that phrase, the dog wants to dive. That's an interesting one. I think about um, a lot of people that I have asked this question in executive ranks, you know, what gives you courage. And oftentimes people will tell me a story about something that they did that was really, really risky. And I will ask, you know, why, why did you have the confidence that you could do that? And often they will say it was a senior person who put that opportunity in front of me. Mm. And I figured if that person had faith in me, then I wasn't going to let him down. It's the I, same thing. I think it's exactly that. It, it's the same notion that they're believing in you so much that you start to believe that, well, I, I guess if they're trusting in, that I can do this, if they believe that I can do this, even though I lack confidence in this moment, I'll at least follow them. Yeah, I'll give you an example. When, when I was at Accenture, which I, you know, I've had my business now for over a dozen years, um, but prior to that, I worked at Accenture as a middle manager. And in, uh, I remember wanting to move into an executive coaching role, and my coach, uh, my boss at the time, uh, said, you know, I think that that would be a good role for you. Why don't you go ahead and learn as much as you can about executive coaching, put together the business case, and I'll bring it to the other partners. So I did all the things that he said to do. And sure enough, he had to, you know, go to bat for me, but he teed up the role, and he got sponsorship for the role, and he came back and said, you know, we got the blessing. We, you can move forward in this new role as the first full-time internal executive coach at Accenture, and you can start coaching the partners, and, uh, and I would suggest that you reach out to them. And I said, I said well, wait a minute. I, I thought I was going to be coaching the middle managers like I am. I, certainly, I'm not going to be coaching the partners. They all have more experience than I do, and they've been around longer than I have, and they've got more leadership experience than I do. 
So, you know, basically, I lacked confidence. And he looked at me and he said the only thing that he could have said that would have unlocked the key for me to be willing to move into the discomfort of this role. He looked at me and said, but Bill, you've coached me. And it was true. He and I had such a trusting relationship. And he had given me such a good constructive feedback over time that I had started to give him constructive feedback as well. And it was definitely true. I had coached him, and he was the most senior guy, and he had all sorts of, all these other partners reported to him. And I thought, well, I guess that that's true. If I could coach him, maybe I could coach these partners. And it became my job for the last two years of uh, my time at Accenture. I coached 35 partners on a regular basis, but I never would have done it had he not said, he, he drew out the capability in me, confronting me with my, with the own inconvertible, incon- <laughs> You know, it was factual. I couldn't turn away from it. This is interesting. So, you know, in some ways you're saying that courage is really about recognizing the fear, acknowledging the fear, noting that it's there, moving into it anyway. But part of what allows you to move it into it anyway is knowing that somebody else believes you can do it. It's, I guess that this is like the literal translation of the word encouragement, we, we think of encouragement as somebody clapping for us or cheering us on from the sidelines, but I think it's so much more active than that. And I think it's, it takes that intercession of somebody who is willing to push you into discomfort for your own good because you're basically telling them that you want them to. And, and sometimes it's about tough love um, and it's about tough feedback. It's not always about cheering you on and clapping for you. It's about saying, dude, get out there because you, you should do this because you can do this. Stop avoiding. It's, sometimes it's what we would call a loving critic. Okay. All right. Now I know why you call yourself the chief encouragement officer, um, pushing people into discomfort. Exactly. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> Bill, I have to ask one more question before we take a break. Sure. So... You said that when you're getting ready to go out on the um, dive, as you were learning to do the high dives, the three-meter dives, that your heart would be racing, you get welts in your legs, you didn't want to go to practice, but you kept going back to practice at any rate. Was it the goal? Was it the coach? Was Why did you keep going back? I think that down deep inside of everybody is this little place of wisdom. Like in, internally, at a very deep level, I think that I knew that, I should go back, that, that there was something drawing me to it. And what was drawing me to it is the better self, right? Like the, the part of me that, um, that is stronger, that, is, that the unactualized potential that was impelling me, you know, or, or encouraging me forward, just like my boss wa- or my uh, coach was, it was the realization that, you know, I, I've got something to stand here to gain from this. And I am getting a little bit better with every single practice, and I am moving towards something. I think I didn't want to give up. I think I, I wanted to hold on to the fact that if he thinks I can do it and I am making incre- incremental pro- progress, that there must be something valuable to gain from doing this. And I have to tell you, Wanda, looking back at hind- with hindsight, I mean, it really gave me my career because now I help people take whatever metaphorical high dives that they're facing. He, he, it helped me find my courage and it's transformed my life. That, that was a gift that he gave me. He helped me find the courage that's inside of me. And, and my belief is, and I know your belief is this, that every single one of your listeners has courage inside of them 
sometimes we just have to have the intercessor to activate it. Yeah, I do believe people have a lot more courage than they give themselves credit for. And like you, I would love to just activate that courage. Um, I see it every day, and I, I often wonder why. I mean, there's just absolutely nothing to lose by not giving it a go. But it's amazing how much people hold themselves back. So it's why I find it fascinating, the conditions around someone that make it easier for them to lean into the fear and into the discomfort. And at that point, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about exactly this thing, about purposeful discomfort and how, as a leader, I can push people into discomfort in a way that's going to help them grow and change and build their confidence. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, Call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Bill Treasurer. Bill is a former U.S. team high-dive champion so diving 100 feet in the air into a 10-foot pool of water for somebody who's afraid of heights. So we have been talking about courage and that courage is not the absence of fear, but courage is leaning into the fear. We've been talking about the process that drives this is moving into discomfort, 
getting practice with it, leaning into the fear, having support from people around you who believe in you, getting bored and pushing yourself a little bit further. A thing that Bill calls purposeful discomfort. So Bill, tell me about this stuff, purposeful discomfort, and why is it so important for leaders? Mm. So I'm going to say something that's a little bit controversial. I think that leaders, I think that their job is to make people uncomfortable. Now, I don't mean that in a fear-stoking way, because fear can have a debilitating impact on performance, but I do mean it in a way that a leader has to nudge people into discomfort, because that's where the growth happens. The big thing is that human beings and organizations don't grow in a zone of comfort. We grow, progress, and evolve in a zone of discomfort. So your job as a leader is twofold. The first is you as a leader have to be doing uncomfortable things occasionally yourself. Your palms have to be sweating. And your job as a leader is to nudge people into discomfort. So what does it look like? You know, I'll give you a couple of examples of, of career situations where you're in over your head and into your discomfort zone. Anytime that you take a job that eclipses your current skills, you're into your discomfort zone. Giving a presentation to your boss's boss is in the discomfort zone. Asking for a promotion or a raise is into the discomfort zone. Fessing up to a client about a mistake that you or your company made is in your discomfort zone. There are literally endless examples of how you grow or situations that cause you to grow in your discomfort zone. So the job of a leader is to make sure that people are, yes, acquiring skills, yes, getting the training they need to to be confident, but uh, also making sure that you're nudging people into discomfort so that they don't get apathetic or complacent. But I'll pause there because I know I said a lot. <laughs> You've said a lot. Um, I'm gonna, there are twofold that I want to go on here. One is, first off, you could push people too far. Definitely. So how do you know when it's too far, when it's not far enough? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and there are some people that will push people too far. And, you know, I think that the key, there's a couple of keys. One is you've got to really know what it is that the person you're pushing wants to get out of it. You know, in my case, I told you about Ford Winter. He knew that I wanted to get a scholarship, right? He knew I wanted to get a high board list of dives. It, it has to be based on what the person you're coaching or leading wants. It can't just be about what you want them to do on your behalf. You know, when we're in a leadership role or we're a boss, you know, quote, unquote, we're very fixated on the results that I want them to get done on behalf of the company. But that's not going to be what jazzes them. You've got to find out what it is, that, how do they want to grow? What skills do they want to acquire? What, are, what value add do they want to uh, be able to contribute to the organization? Because when those goals are based on what they're trying to get out of the experience, they're going to have so much more ownership. The, the other is that you've got to be mindful. when The ways that you can tell when you've pushed too far, productivity will dip. Um, maybe the complaints will go up. Maybe they will start to show up late to work um, with greater frequency. Um, maybe they start shutting down and not offering their ideas. You know, they start to tell you in symbolic ways that you've overloaded them too much. But you've got to be very attentive as a leader. You can't be oblivious to that stuff. I can imagine this is pretty tough because some individuals, some personalities in the discomfort zone whine. 
They just moan and they feel better if they have a chance to moan. And part of your job is just to listen to them as a leader and kind of, you know, okay, right. I heard you now get back and do it any rate. Um, other people, when they whine, it's really serious. Yeah. So presumably you're making some adaptation here for the individual style. You have to definitely. That's, I mean, it's a great point, right? Like you can't just blanket your whole team with the same approach for each individual. There are going to be some people that, you're, you're going to hear them whine, and it's going to take you back because they never whine. That, that's probably somebody you've pushed too far you know, past the threshold of discomfort. On the other hand, you might have some others that are you know, just general malcontents or pretty whiny all the time anyway, and, uh, and that's the kind of person you might not need to let up. So having an individual focus is going to be very important. Um, and, and monitoring you know, how much, with some people I'm going to need to throttle down and push into discomfort more, and with others I might need to pull back because they're very sensitive to uh, being out in the discomfort zone. Okay. All right, fair enough. I love this notion that it really starts with what the person wants. What is it that they're trying to do and to get out? And that means for us as individuals working for a manager, we have to be really clear what our goals are about. Um, if I want that promotion, I want to move to the next level. I want to see how far I can go. If I'm not telling my manager, then they're not pushing me in the right directions. Okay, an yeah. important point. I had a, a a priest one time frame that to me as the holy question, and, and he literally asked me. He's like, "Bill, I'm going to ask you." He said, "I'm going to tell you the four most important words in the English language, and then I'd like your answer." He said, "What do you?" want. A lot of people can tell you what they don't want, the condition that they have that they don't like, the thing that's being done to them that they don't like, and what's wrong with the situation that they have. But getting accountable means answering the holy question. Well, then, if you know that you have a condition you don't want, what is it that you actually want? Because until you can answer that question with specificity, no coach, no mentor, no leader is going to be able to help you get what you want unless you first know what you want. That becomes the destination. So, so your job as an individual and as a, also, therefore, as a leader, you've got to know what you want and you've got to help people get what they want, but that means understanding very clearly what it is they want. Sometimes, Wanda, they don't know. Sometimes, as a coach, your job is to help bring some clarity out of them because they may, they, they may be all muddied up when it comes to that question. I see that a lot, that when you ask people what they want out of their careers, they really don't know how to answer that question. Uh, they'll make up some answer and give you some, you know, I want your job or some variation on that theme, but they don't really know what that means. Um, so I think it's an important question. What do you want? I also find, though, it takes incredible courage to say to your manager, I want to be CEO. I want to be on the management team. I want to be the head of the function. Mm -hmm. That's courage in and of itself. It is. You, get, you know, you have to notice it, narrow it, and then name it. Because once you name it, you can claim it. But if you don't, uh, but you're right. It absolutely takes courage to finally say out loud the thing that has been stewing on the inside of you that you've secretly wanted but haven't had the guts to actually say it out loud. So that's where the courage comes in is to, you know, first notice it, then narrow it down, and then name it. And when you name it, then you can do some stuff about it. 
Yeah, we're back to where we started in the first segment. That is, I find a lot of people are afraid of being found out, that I'm I'm not good enough. So I don't want to say that I really want that thing because you're going to tell me I'm not good enough. It's an interesting human condition I think we well, all I suffer with. Well, I think, too, with. I think that, that when you say it, you become a little bit obliged to it. it it's easier to not name it. It's easier to, to not claim it and uh, and then, therefore you know, sort of not have to live into it. So uh, it's, it's yes, fear of failure, that I might not have the skills to do this thing. But it may also be fear of success. What if I do this thing, and now I have to live into a higher standard on a consistent basis? It, it becomes obliging in some way. Also true. Also true. So let's go back to the leader. Here I am trying to push people into discomfort intentionally, so that they grow. They grow in a direction that they want to go. I know the person has a goal and I know for them to get to that goal or to that place or to that opportunity, they've got to acquire some other skills and experiences they don't have. Any other advice for leaders in putting people into purposeful discomfort? Well, one would be to, you know, no diver, for example, does one jump from a hundred foot without doing a hundred jumps from one foot. So it is this incremental, you know, sometimes we as leaders may want some, this idea of impatience, right? A lot of leaders, and the, the higher you go up in the organization, it's been my experience, especially in the C-suite, you get this virtue of impatience, right? Like impatience is a virtue when you're up in those offices because we really want to get results. And I think because of that impatience, sometimes we push people too far too fast. So I think it's being recognizing the importance of some degree of incrementalism that that um, through a methodical process of asking people to move into discomfort in small ways is going to pay greater dividends than asking for giant leaps right off the bat. Right, like I would call it small C courage versus big C courage. Ex- helping people do smaller acts of courage, recognizing that at some moment in time they'll be asked to do a big C courage event but take the little leaps before you take the giant leaps. It's an interesting statement. So the incremental, and again, that means I have to know my person. I have to adapt to the person. I have to know what they can take. How big is a step for them? How much is this to end patience? This incredible amount of patience that we will get there, but it's not going to be instantaneously overnight. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I want to turn to a hot topic for a moment and talk about millennials for a minute. Cause you said in the first segment that when people are bored, That should be a flag for leaders. And you talked in your own experience that when you were bored was the time that you need to push back into discomfort. One of the things that we hear about millennials all the time is they get bored. And do you think that is just that they're ready to be pushed again? Or is it something else? Wow, that's a really fascinating take on it, right? That's a a twist. Um, That uh, It's interesting. Yeah, millennials are a a different uh, group of people, clearly, and so valuable to the workforce. They're bringing such positive change, in in my estimation. And yet, uh, being a leader for a millennial takes certainly knowledge of that generation and what they're all about. Um, And, you know, I don't know. I I guess that I would say that a lot of times comfort uh, or a lot of times courage is in the opposite direction of our comfort. And so if a millennial is getting uh, bored, it probably, it, it's something we should pay attention to for sure. On the other hand, 
I think that sometimes there's value in helping them recognize that the, the, the courageous thing for them might be to do the, the thing that is uncomfortable, and in their case, the, the discomfort with the very fact of learning a certain degree of patience, right? Like that um, I think that they want it fast. They, they want to move into the leadership role quickly. They, they're all about merit, which I get, and, and I totally support, and I'm totally into it. I'm, I'm not like a – I come from a lot of industries where I work. The, the most prominent industry that I work is the construction industry. And in the construction industry, time over target is what gets you uh, – is how you advance. So a certain degree of seasoning, right, like it's a journeyman's business. And that can be really frustrating for a millennial who comes of an ethos of, hey, who cares how long I've been here? Am I qualified? Did I earn the right to, you know, do the thing that uh, I, I should be at the next level? I should be at the same pay grade as that other person. Who cares that they're, they're older than me? Um, you know, I've got the skills. I, I understand it from, a, from, a, from that vantage point and perspective, but I also understand that some industries – they want to see some seasoning. They want to know that you've earned your stripes. They want to know that you have, um, have been through the, the hard lessons before you've earned the right to get a new merit badge. Um, so, so I think sometimes, what, you know, maybe for the millennial, it, it could be that the hard thing is acquiring some patience, recognizing that some seasoning may be needed before you you know, move to the next level. That I know it doesn't happen fast always, but sometimes it takes those seasoning experiences before you're actually qualified to, to uh, move into that next role. So, I mean, your point is, a good, is an interesting one, that um, boredom may not, in the case of the millennials, mean it's time to push them. It may be helping them acquire the lesson of patience. Well, it's time to push them, but push them in a different direction. It's not about the next new. It's about staying and mastering the one that you're at. Yeah, that's so, a good way to put it. It's not about the next new. That, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So this means as a leader, as I'm trying to push people into discomfort zones for growth, I've got to analyze the source of the boredom and what it is that they really need for the next level of growth. Um, and again, I've, I've got to go back to the individual uh, approach and whatever that individual is taking. Okay, I have to ask one last quick question. As we're talking about this confidence, it's easy to, you know, there's this fine line between overconfidence and underconfidence. Any advice for how you know where the right balance is there? Well, it, you know, there's certainly this idea of false confidence. And, and I see it, you know, there's two different kinds of leaders that I often come into, I, or I should say there's three kinds. Like, uh, and they exist on a continuum. I think the ideal is to be a confident, uh, a, a leader with confidence and humility, this just sort of wonderful blend. The, the boss that I worked at with at Accenture, his name is Heinz Brannan. I actually saw him the other night. We were on a flight together, um, coincidentally. And he was this wonderful blend of confidence and humility. He, he was not arrogant, and yet he believed in himself. And he believed in other people, too. Um, on the other end of the continuum are two different poles, one that I would call a pighead, and that is somebody who is falsely confident, full of pride and arrogance, and that has to get his way all the time. I would call that person a pighead. Existing counterbalancing to that on the other bad end of the continuum would be a weakling. 
and that is a pushover, somebody who throws you under the bus, somebody who is really detached, somebody who's super aloof, somebody who does not, uh, who says something in one room, walks into the other room and sees where the wind is blowing and then changes his opinion um, out of fickleness, not out of principle. So I think that, you know, you've got this grand continuum ranging from pigheads to weaklings, and in the middle place is this sweet spot. But, boy, if you can land on it to be confident but also have humility, that's the place to be. So, you know, when do you know when you become a pighead? Well, you probably aren't going to know it yourself because you're generally oblivious to it. But you're going to see it through the reaction that you get from other people through your own obnoxiousness. Same thing with a weakling. You're going to see it in that people aren't going to want to be around you. People are not going to call for your leadership because it's ultimately impotent. So I think that the sweet spot is to be confident and humble. Okay, so and then we come back to the tough love stuff again, that somebody's willing to tell you the hard message because that's pushing you again out of your comfort zone. All right. It's an interesting, boy, it does make the leader's job sound much more complicated than just having a strategy and a vision. Because we started with this notion that the leader's job is to push people into a zone of discomfort because that's where they grow. But that you can't go into a zone of discomfort based on your own agenda as a leader. You have to use that based on the individual's uh, agenda, what they want to get out of it, where they're trying to go in their careers. And that you're constantly mindful of if I push them too far or not far enough. And then I'm adapting to their individual needs and their individual skills and their generation, of course, along the way. Fascinating discussion. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk specifically about courage and what you think it takes to develop greater courage. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. 
these possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Bill Treasurer. Bill is an author of several books, Leaders Open Doors, Courage Goes to Works, Courageous Leadership, Right Risk. The website is www.couragebuilding.com. Bill describes himself as a chief encouragement officer and an evangelist for courage. We've been talking about leaning into fear, particularly about the leader's job as pushing people gently the right amount into a zone of discomfort so that they grow, having faith in them, supporting them, encouraging them, but still pushing them into discomfort where the growth is. We've also been talking about the things that you do to conquer your fear, which is about subduing the fear, not getting rid of the fear. So moving into discomfort, getting some practice, getting some support from people who believe in you, and reaching the point where you're bored, and then moving into more zones of discomfort. So this time, I want to specifically focus on courage. I routinely do panel discussions with senior executives, and I'll ask them about a critical turning point in their careers, one where they took a risk, it worked out, their career had a whole new level, and kind of catapulted their career forward. Um, And usually most senior executives have two, three, four of those. Mm. One of the questions I always ask along the way is about courage. What gave you the courage that you could take that risk? So, Bill, in your experience, all this work on courage, what does it take to drive courage? What can we do to build our own courage? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm actually in the midst of, uh, I just submitted a manuscript for my next book, and it's called A Leadership Kick in the Ass. And, and I think sometimes it's going into that discomfort and actually having a, a humiliating event. I, I think sometimes it's this embarrassing moment that is so disruptive, that is, uh, smashes the ego so much that w- now we're able to finally be receptive to new lessons. And, and now the newness can really come in. We can be willing. We become actually ready to change. Um, so I think that it takes a lot of readiness. To, to be inspired to, to do something in a different way. When we find that what has worked for us in the past no longer works for us now, that maybe we, had to, we need some course correction, we have a high degree of readiness, and now we're willing. Um, and sometimes it takes that humiliating event. I would call it transformative humiliation, okay. uh, which creates readiness. Um, I think that, as we talked about, I think answering the holy question, what it is do I want, um, and then I think that, you know, there's this thing called the theory of least regrets when we're facing a big moment, when we've got a consequential decision in front of us. 
to ask ourselves, what will I regret the least? Doing this courageous thing and maybe failing or not doing this courageous thing and having to live for the rest of my life not knowing if I would have been successful if I had done it. Um, so the theory of least regrets can be a, a powerful framework to think of when you're considering a big move. All right. So there is a willingness, though, to have a humiliating event. There's a strong enough ego strength that says, okay, that isn't going the way I had hoped it would go, and it isn't working, and I now have to take a look in the mirror and decide what I'm going to do about it. Yeah, it take, it's almost a capitulation, right? Like it's, it's almost crying uncle. It's almost saying surrender. Uh, putting up my white flag saying, okay, I'm willing now. I'm willing to learn because I've learned that the, the way that I was trying it isn't working, um, that I am the common denominator in some wreckage that I may have called, caused, and, uh, and I finally become willing. I think that everybody has this moment at some point in their life that uh, where, where our own ego has gotten in the way, and, uh, and now we're, we're willing to try something differently. I can tell you in my own life, I've had a couple of these instances, and I'll bet, I'll bet they're not too far off from the examples of the risks that the people that you've asked the question around courage. In my case, I, had a, uh, well, I was in a leadership role at a young age, and one of the people that I was leading basically called me on my obnoxious leader behavior. And at first I got defensive because who is he to tell me that I was being obnoxious? Um, but when I, learned, when I thought about it, the feedback that he had given me, I realized that he was right, and I wanted to be better. And so it, it took hard-hitting feedback. You know, some of your listeners, for example, somebody who may have gotten a tough 360-degree feedback where they got feedback from somebody anonymously that showed them that they weren't the leader that they thought that they were, that's the precise moment that opens up this potential to learn something new that can open up the, the readiness for me to actually apply my courage to get vulnerable, to be willing to try something different, because I've gotten feedback that tells me that I need to change. Yeah. You know, when you give, I'm going to focus on this thing about tough feedback. It's something that I do on a regular basis, walking people through some tough feedback and what it means they do. And I find I get one of two responses, one of three a complete ego meltdown where I feel like I can't, the person feels like they can't do anything about it. Total defensiveness. No, that's not right. That's not fair. That person says this, you know, all sorts of things mm. or an absolute willingness to lean into the feedback and say, so what do I do about it? Mm -hmm. But it's a tough thing as a leader to know to how to deal with those, you know, because people could take any one of three doors and sometimes they have to walk through the defensive door before they'll get to the what do I do about it door. Yeah, any advice? I, I totally agree. I, you know, I, I, you're right. That those are pretty much the three choices. A friend of mine is Jim Kuzes, and, and along with Barry Posner, they wrote a book called The Leadership Challenge, uh, which has sold two million copies. And Jim's a really interesting guy. At one time, he had worked for John Gardner, who was uh, the Secretary for Health and Human Services and Welfare under uh, Lyndon Johnson. And, and what, Howard jo um, what um, John Gardner would tell my friend Jim Kuzes is you have to have at least one loving critic. You have to empower at least one person around you to be able to point the finger at you or at least hold the mirror up to you and give you tough feedback but in a loving way, 
in a way that you know is for your own best interest. You know, I had a boss one time, Wanda, the same boss, by the way, uh, that I mentioned before, Heinz Brennan, a great guy. I knew he cared about me. I knew that he was interested in seeing me excel in my career. And one moment in time, he told me, he said, Bill, I'm going to give you some feedback. It's going to sting. I'm afraid that if you don't do something about it, it's going to hurt your career. But I see it at people your age. You're in your mid-30s. This was like 20 years ago. He said, but, but there's stuff you can do about it. It makes sense to me why you're doing it, but you need to change it. I think you're becoming a brown noser. I mean, it hurt. It totally stung. He didn't mince words, right? But I knew he told me that for the good of my old career. And ultimately, what he did was give me permission. He said, Bill, you're a smart guy. You're a clever guy. Don't rely on laughing at people's jokes harder than they are funny to get ahead. That's dishonest, and it's manipulation, and you can do better. He didn't do it in front of people. He didn't do it to embarrass me. He did it because he was holding me accountable to a better self. And that was a transformative thing for him to say. You're, you know, you're right. I could have chose door number two into defensiveness and told him why he was wrong or go, go to my wife that night and swear about Heinz Brannan. But ultimately, it stung because it was truthful. Um, so, it, you know, what do you do with that feedback in that moment? Do you defend why you're so right and double down on your own conviction and therefore become ignorant of the learning? Or do you actually say, you know, this is a credible person in front of me and I know that they care about me. They've told me truthful things before that have panned out. I'm going to adopt the lesson that they've given me. You know, Bill, as you talk about this boss and as you talk about your coach and you talk about all the moments of courage and discomfort and growth that come from all of that, it strikes me that the common denominator from the senior person, the leader or the coach who's advising you is that you know the person has your best interest at heart, um, that there's a good bit of trust that they have faith in you. And that says something about the quality of the relationship of the person that you're listening to. Absolutely. 100% underscored exclamation point. You know, the, um, my book, Leaders Open Doors, I dedicated it to five mentors in different areas of my life who, who gave me the feedback that I needed to have and had the courage to give me that feedback. Because I trusted them, because, again, I knew that they truly cared about me and in some cases loved me, that I, I knew that I should follow and heed their feedback, even though it was tough feedback and, and many times it was, you know, sort of stung. So it's got to be based on the quality of the leader in front of you. And at the end of the day, you know, a leader has to be more than just about results. It has to be about the means to the results. And the means to the results is the treatment of the people. Are you all about the results that you've got to get done on behalf of the company? Or do you actually care about the people that work for you and what they want to get out of the experience of being led by you? And to care about them, you've got to take an interest in knowing them. It goes back to what you had talked about, Wanda, earlier, about that individuated, that individual focus. You won't be able to have it if you don't actually give the time of day to the people that, you're, that report to you one-on-one, -on -one, alone, and it can be for short intervals of time, but you've got to take an interest in them. Okay. All right, Bill. We're at close here. Unfortunately, I have a feeling we could go on. With me today is Bill Treasurer. The website is www.couragebuilding.com. And the books, 
Leaders open doors. Courage goes to work. Right risk. I think, Bill, the most exciting thing from today for me is this notion that as a leader, my job is to both fundamentally care about people, to build that trust, and then to push them into a zone of discomfort so that they grow. And for me, the zone of discomfort means that I'm going to get some practice. I'm going to be nervous. I'm going to incrementally move forward until I conquer that particular moment. Bill, thanks for being with us. Wanda, it's my pleasure. And thank you to all the listeners who tuned in today as well. All right, thanks. And next week we'll be talking with Lee Carraher about managing millennials. Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. We'll be right back.